Good morning, everyone. That wasn't as good as the 9 o'clock service. <laughs> you should be awake. They were still asleep. Good morning, everybody. I, re I really am glad to be with you, and I've seen many of you that I know, have known for years, and I'm glad to see you, but I'm also glad to see faces that I haven't seen. That's always wonderful, too, so way to go. That's a good thing for a church to have new faces, yes? So I'm glad for that. Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 6, if you want to read it along with me. But while you're turning there, uh, on page 811 in your Bibles, let me just say a word of thanks to you. I am the uh, doormat, or the president, however you want to put it, of uh, a ministry called Third Millennium Ministries. And your church has supported us and prayed for us for all these 17 years that we've been in existence. And it's a great pleasure for me just to say one word to you at this point, just so you'll understand what your work has done for the kingdom of God. Uh, third millennium is trying to meet one of the greatest needs in the world today, and that is that where the church is growing the fastest in the world, there is the least opportunity for leaders of the church to learn the Bible. Where the church is growing the fastest in the world, there's the least opportunity for church leaders to learn the Bible. And because of you and others like you, uh, Third Millennium can t tell you honestly and can verify for you that we know that right now, though we've just begun, uh, we are being used by church leaders in every country recognized by the United Nations. Isn't that glorious? So I know you may feel stuck sometimes in Macon, Georgia. You're not stuck at all. You're everywhere in the whole world. And so thank you very much, and literally, and this is no exaggeration, millions of church leaders around the world thank me with you for your support and your help for this ministry. The passage we're going to use as our scripture reading this morning is one that most of you will know. We often call it the Lord's Prayer. And rather than me read it to you from the Bible, I'm going to ask you to recite it with me. But before we do, I have to ask you, do you have trespasses or do you have debts in this church? Debts? Okay. So if you're a trespasser, you're off the hook. Okay? If you're a debtor, mm, sorry, this is for you. All right? You ready for this? Uh, Jesus asked his disciples, or pardon me, his disciples asked Jesus to say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And uh, he responded in this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, these are words that most of us have heard before. Some of us recite them week by week. Some of us even day by day. And because they're so familiar to us, we need a special help from you. We're asking you now to send Holy Spirit to us, and may he fill each heart in this room so that our eyes can be open to your truth, our ears can be open to hear you speak. Holy Spirit, come and soften our hearts that you may take these words that we think we know so well and invigorate them and make them powerful in our lives so that we may be your faithful servants. And as you do that, we will give you the thanks for it. We will give you the praise for it. Amen. I don't know about you, but I watch the news all the time. And when I'm not at home, able to watch it on the TV, I'm watching it on my phone. 
If I can't do that, I'm listening to it on the radio. A lot of people are that way now. You know, we live in a world where you can get the news constantly. And if I had thought about it, I would have checked between services to see what the headlines were. I didn't, but it's only because I didn't think about it. But most of us also know that we have a couple of different reactions nowadays when you watch and hear or read about the news. Uh, some of us will be watching TV and things are so bad, so bad, everywhere, including our own country, that you, know, you sort of get depressed, right? And you sort of go, wow, things are so bad, I cannot understand what in the world is going on. Others of us watch the TV or whatever and get angry at what's going on. I have the first reaction in my home. I just get depressed. My wife gets angry and starts yelling at the TV. I keep on telling her they can't hear her. They can't hear you, Gina. You can hear them. They can't hear you. But I sort of figure as long as she doesn't throw something into the TV and break it, it's okay. Is that all right with you? But you know how we deal with it. Once we get fed up, either with the depression or we get fed up with the anger, you know how we handle it. We turn it off and act like it's not there anymore and live our nice little private, safe, comfortable lives and ignore all the troubles that are around us. Well, Jesus spoke to his disciples in a world that in many ways was just like our world. A world full of trouble, a world full of sorrow, of pain, of opposition to all things good, a world that was corrupted at every corner and getting worse and worse. But when he spoke to his disciples, he didn't say, turn the TV off, ignore what's going on around you, and just concentrate on your own life. That's not what Jesus' answer was. Instead, Jesus taught his disciples that they need to reinvigorate a vision a vision for their lives that the whole of the Bible talks about, but that he summarized very succinctly in this thing that we often call the Lord's Prayer. You can find what I'm going to say this morning in many, many places in the Bible, but this is a nice place because we know it. We know these words. And in fact, if you're a follower of Jesus today, you probably can find the vision for your life in that prayer. But... Unfortunately, a lot of people, if not most of us, who do follow Jesus locate themselves, as it were, down in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. I can find myself there. You know how it goes. Give us this day our daily bread, which basically means, Lord, please take care of me. Uh, Forgive us our debts, which means, I'm sorry, I did it again. Please forgive me. Uh, And lead us not into temptation, which basically means help me do better tomorrow than I did today. And frankly, that's about as far as most of us go. Help me depend on you more. I'm sorry I did it again. Please help me do better than I did today, tomorrow. And that's sort of the highest vision most of us have for our walk with Jesus. Now, if that's where you are in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer, way to go. Because you're far ahead of most of the world. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but most people in the world today don't have any reason to live. And those that do have horrible reasons for living. So if you're in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer, that's great. It's wonderful. But I really don't think that's where the big vision is. Not the kind of vision that can compel you through your life, and not the kind of vision that you can give to your children and to their children after them and their children after them. Not the kind of vision that Jesus wanted his disciples to have when they were facing the kind of world you and I are facing. 
We find that vision in the top half of the Lord's Prayer. You know, the part you go through real quick so you can get down to something that means something to you. Give us this day our daily bread. That, that part, the upstairs part. And you know how it goes. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you can see why we gravitate toward the bottom because it's give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, lead us not in temptation. The bottom half is all about us. Of course, that's the way things are, isn't it? And the top half is all about you and your kingdom and you and your name and those kinds of things which we go, whoa, what is all of that about? And so no wonder we would gravitate toward the bottom of it. But let me encourage you this morning that we need to look at the first half of the Lord's Prayer. And maybe if we can do that, we can find a way of not simply getting depressed when we see the world around us and not simply getting angry and not simply turning it off and acting like it's not there anymore. Maybe there's another way. Maybe the way of Jesus should be the way that we embrace. But as Jesus told his disciples about this big vision for their lives, he called on them to do some changing, some adjusting in the ways they believed about certain things, the ways they behaved toward certain things, the way they felt about certain things. He, he called them to do some adjusting in their lives, and I think he calls on us to adjust in many of the same ways. And the first thing that he called on his disciples to change in their lives was what they believed about God. What they believed about God. Our Father. Now, those are precious words for people who follow Jesus. Because one of the things that Jesus came to this earth to tell us was this. I know that you feel alone. I know that the world's a big place. I know you feel alienated. I know you don't feel like anybody cares about you. But the one who made everything can become your personal spiritual father that he can know you by name that he can love you like a father should that he can protect you and care for you when you're weak and when you're tired he can be there for you that's a precious thing that jesus said but all too often when we especially we american christians when we hear those words our father uh, something sort of pops into our head. It's an image we get from the movies or from kids' books or something. I don't know exactly where it comes from, but it's there. It's in our brain. And this is the image we get when we hear our Father. We think that God is sort of like a, a big granddaddy up in heaven, you know, long white beard, and he's sitting in his celestial rocking chair and sort of rocking back and forth like this, looking down on the earth and noticing all the troubles down here and wringing his hands like this and saying, oh, I wish my children on the earth would just pay a little more attention to me because I've done so much for them already and I would do everything, everything for them if they would just pay attention to me because I exist to make my little children on the earth happy. This is why I'm here. That's what most people think when they hear that God is their father. He's like a sweet granddaddy who wants nothing more than to make his little children on the earth happy and that he exists for this purpose. Now, I know what a sweet granddaddy is. I am one. I'm the best one around. And my grandchildren love me, they adore me, and I adore them too. But I'm no fool. I know exactly why. 
I know exactly why. It's because when they were little, every time I saw them, I would grab them and hug them real tight, and I'd whisper in their ear, I love you so much. And then the next thing I would say to them every single time was this, do you want to go to Toys R Us now? And I'd take them, and I would buy them whatever they wanted. If they wanted one of them, I'd get them two. If they wanted three, I'd get them six. It didn't matter. When they're young, their tastes are inexpensive. Okay, they get older, you have to stop that foolishness. But every grandfather in here knows that there's nothing more precious to you than your grandchildren adoring you. And so we'll do whatever it takes to get them to adore us. Well, I have some good news for you. That's not what Jesus meant when he said, Our Father. It's much bigger than that. Nothing so trifling as a sweet granddaddy that takes his grandchildren to Toys R Us. No. And we get the first clue of that in the fact that Jesus doesn't just say, pray our Father. What's he say? He says, pray our Father who art in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And that's a big clue to us because every time you read in the Bible about heaven, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, the picture's the same. Heaven is God's glorious throne room. It is where God sits enthroned, blinding light radiates from him, Echoes of thunder are all around him. Lightning flashes. A river of fire pours out from beneath his feet. And there are myriads upon myriads of creatures who are crying out all the time, Holy, 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 hallowed be your name. You see, that's what Jesus is talking about. God in heaven, in his throne room, holy be your name. That's quite a different picture than a sweet granddaddy. In fact, you might be surprised to know this, but in the days of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, in Israel, outside of Israel, it was very common for people to call their human kings their fathers. They would call the king father. And so this is what Jesus is telling us when he says, pray this way, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's saying this to us, the number one way, The number one way that we are to believe about God and think about God is simply this. He is our king. He is our sovereign. He is our emperor, the ruler over all things. Now, as soon as I say to an American audience, God is our king, we blink out here. Because we have never had a king in this country. We don't know what that would even be like. In fact, we will not have a king in this country. You can say an amen in the Presbyterian Church at that point. Uh-huh, I heard it. There's one Baptist in here. Way to go. Thank you for coming today. That's right. We will not have a king in this, in this country. No way. I come from Virginia, and I want to tell you about our, the state flag of Virginia, the flag of the Commonwealth of Virginia, okay? It's much better than the Georgia flag, sorry. But... And many of you have seen it. If you don't believe me, Google it. Take a look right now. I don't mind. It won't bother me if you have your phone on. Take a look at it. It's got this nice, solid blue satin background, and in the middle of the flag is a circle. Now, most people know that much. It looks kind of plain from a distance, but I need to take you inside the circle because it tells us a lot about what it means to be an American. It's a picture. It's a picture of a man lying dead on the ground on his back. And next to him on the ground is a crown that's fallen off of his head. It's a dead king. And standing over this dead king is a woman who has a spear in her hand and her foot on the chest of this dead king. You got the picture here? A dead king with a woman with her foot on his chest and a spear in her hand. 
And written around the edge of that circle are these words in Latin, sic semper tyrannis, thus always to tyrants. Got the message? We will never have a king in the state of Virginia. And if somebody tries to become our king, we know exactly what to do. We send our women after them. And they'll take care of it. No, I think that's the message. Now, I have the feeling that's not just the attitude of Virginia. I think that's true in Georgia, too. I think it's true of the whole country. And we know why. Why won't we have a human king? It's because kings are terribly inconvenient to have around. I mean, they've got weird ideas, like their agenda is more important than your agenda. That their purposes are more important than your purposes. That their happiness is more important than your happiness. That their glory is more important than your glory. And in fact, they actually think you ought to be serving their agenda, their purposes, their glory. In fact, they actually think you ought to live for that and you ought to be happy to die for that. Can you imagine anything more inconvenient than that, to have people like that around? I think that tells us something. I think it tells us that if our Christian faith has become convenient... And by that I mean it just sort of fits with who you are and you're comfortable with it. If it's become convenient in the sense that you can go to church week after week and never change your life, that you can go on with your life just as it's always been, nice, quiet, private, safe, and sound. If that's the kind of Christianity you have, if it's become convenient like that, then maybe, just maybe, you still don't know what it means to say that God is your king. Because kings, they are not convenient. So when was the last time you read the Bible or heard someone speak about the Bible or the last time you prayed and you had to say, I've got to change my life. I think Jesus called on his disciples to do some changing of what they thought about God. And I think he calls on us to do that too. He's not your granddaddy. He's your king. But in this top half of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus also calls for the reinvigoration of the vision of what it means to be his follower in another way too. Not just change the way you think about God, but also what you believe and what you do and what you feel about something else. It's going to sound weird, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. Jesus calls on us to change the way we think about the earth. Life here. This thing that you're experiencing right now. Human life on this planet. And you know he does that. You know how it goes. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. Okay, Father, kingdom. You see, I told you he was talking about God as king. I told you. Our Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, that phrase, may your kingdom come, that's one, if you've ever been in Christian circles, you know Christians use that expression a lot. When the kingdom comes, something like that. I had a grandmother who used it all the time. Every time we would want more dessert or more ice cream or something like that, go into the kitchen. I can remember it as a young child. It's happening several times, and we gave up after this. But we would ask her, can we have some more pie? Or can we have some more ice cream, Grandma? And she said, sure, when the kingdom comes... Which meant, get out of here, you're bothering me, it's never going to happen. Okay, so I don't know what you think it means when you say, may the kingdom come, but it's not that. So Jesus, what do you mean when you say these flowery words, may your kingdom come? Well, he tells us right away, may your will be done. All right, I can get that. If he's the king, the father, the royal father in heaven, great. Then if he's going to be the king, that means he's got to have a place where his will is done where people obey him, where people do what he wants, where they seek his goals and his dreams and his vision. But Jesus, where do you want that to happen? Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. I want you to notice something. Heaven is not the goal of the kingdom of God. Heaven is the standard for the kingdom of God. The goal, the destiny, the dream is that what's true in heaven now will be true on the earth. That's what Jesus came to do. That what's true in heaven now will one day be true on earth. So how do creatures obey God in that throne room? They all do exactly what he says. You would, too, if you were before the blinding light of God's glory. You wouldn't even think about disobeying him. Even in the devil does what God says when he's in the throne room of God. But, of course, when he leaves, he does just like you and me. He does what he wants to do, right? But not up there. Well, you want to know what Jesus wanted to happen? You want to know why he came? He came so that what's true in heaven now, that God's will is done perfectly will one day be done right here on this planet. And I know that's upside down for everything we believe as Christians today, but it is what Jesus called on his disciples to do, and it's what he calls on you and me to change right now. And that is the priority that we are to give to changing the world. I mean, if you and I had written that prayer, we would have probably said something like this. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in heaven, because that's where we're going to spend eternity anyway. That needs to be nice up there, so please make that a nice place. Forget down here. We're tired of this. We're out of here. As soon as we can possibly get there. That's where we want to be forever. But it's not what Jesus said. And the reason for this goes all the way through the Bible. Here's the reason. You ready for this? Because the goal, the reason, the purpose of this planet is to become God's showcase. This is the place where he's going to demonstrate that he is the king of all things by defeating evil, by eliminating it from this planet by turning it into his palace, by making it the kind of place that pleases him. And those who follow Jesus will be with him in that wonderful new heavens and new earth. That's the goal. That's the dream. And even now, moments here and there, you can get a glimpse of what a world like that could be. You know, it's when you see that sunrise, it takes your breath away. 
It's when you hear that concert that you just go, I cannot believe how beautiful that was, or that work of art, the time when you first fall in love, or the time when you have your first child, the joy and the splendor, momentary as it is, that you can see what it could be like to live in this world made new. Now imagine a world, this world, with no sin, no destruction, no violence, no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no regrets for anything you have ever done. Imagine living in a world like that. That's why Jesus came here, not to take you off to heaven, but to give you that world. And he has called his followers to yearn for that world and to work for that world every day of their lives. Think about it this way. Uh, imagine, just imagine for a minute that you were to ask someone who's not a Christian, I mean somebody you know is not a believer, and you were to ask them this simple question, uh, what would be a good life? I mean, what kind of life will you call good? The kind of life, you know, that you would be glad to have lived so that at the last minute, as you're taking your last breath, you could say, I'm glad I had this life rather than some other life. What would, what would most of your unbelieving friends say? Well, looking around the room here, I can tell you what most of your unbelieving friends or relatives would say. They'd probably say things like these. Well, a good life, huh? Well, I hope not to get divorced more than once because that's very painful. That would not be good. And, you know, to say it's a good life, I need my kids to do well. Okay, so my kids need to be doing well. That would be a good life. And everybody needs money. If I can make enough money to retire early, that'd be good because then I can enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy it. That's, that'd be great. That's a good life. And I know everybody's going to get sick. Everybody's going to die. But, you know, I want to die with just as little pain as possible. And um, I want to die. In fact, the best way to die is in the middle of the night because you don't even know what's going to happen. You just go to sleep and you die. That'd be a good life. And then if I wake up after I'm dead and... I found out there is a God and there is a heaven. I hope he'll agree with me that I was good enough to get in. Now, isn't that where most of your unbelieving friends and relatives are? Maybe there's somebody here today that's just there. That's exactly where you are. That your greatest hope is that when you die, that if you wake up and find out there is a God and there is a heaven that he'll agree with you that you are good enough to get in. I, I hate to tell you this, I really do hate to tell you this, but there's nobody good enough to get in. There's only been one person who's that good, because you've really got to be perfect to make it in on your own. And that one person's name was Jesus. And that, that's why Christians love him so much. <laughs> if you're not here with Christ, if you under, want to know why we talk about him so much, that's why. He was that good. And that's why we say to you that the only way to make it in to God's pleasure after death is for you to be in his shadow, for you to be attached to him. That's what it means to have faith in him, that, that he'll get you in. Because nobody can get in on their own. That's what Christianity is all about. It's all about Jesus getting you in to eternal life. The Bible actually says that. It says, to as many as receive him, to them he, be, he gives them the right to be called the children, the children of God, loved of God. And you can have that if you want it. Just come to him.
But suppose we were to ask the same question to a Christian. Now, I mean a real one now. You know, like you. The kinds that go to church and read the Bible and go to Bible studies and pray and that kind of stuff. Good Christian stuff, okay? Real Christian. Suppose we were to say to a Christian like that, what would be a good life? The kind of life you would be glad to have lived so that the last moment as you're taking your last breath, you could say, I'm glad I lived this life rather than some other life. What would we say? A lot of us would have to say, well, I hope not to get divorced more than once because, boy, it really hurts. That was, that's, that's not a good life. And, you know, I need my children to do well. If they'll do well, then I could call that a good life. But everybody needs money, and if I could make a lot of money, I could retire early so I could enjoy life before I get too old to enjoy life. And I know everybody's going to get sick and die, but I really want to die with as little pain as possible. And even followers of Jesus will say the best way to die is in the middle of the night. You just go to sleep. You don't even know what's going to happen. I don't want to die that way. I always pray for a two-minute warning. I got some things to say, okay? And my wife and daughter have agreed to have the phones there to record it. So you may get that on Facebook. Richard's last two minutes. I'm hoping God gives that to me. (laughs) I got some things to say. But at any rate, that's not what most people want. They just want to go quietly into the night and go to sleep. But that's where the story changes for us, isn't it? Because we believe that once we pass away, that our souls begin to shake like this and sparkle maybe and get wings and we fly away to heaven. And when we get to heaven, St. Peter welcomes us because we have the blood of Jesus on us. It's a wonderful thing, but he says, wait a minute. And he runs over to the closet and he pulls out a gigantic golden harp and he hands it to us and he says, now take this harp and sit over there in the choir, start singing, start playing that harp forever and forever and forever and forever and forever. I have really good news for you. Jesus did not come to this world so that you would get a golden harp to sing in a choir forever. Jesus did not die on a cross and resurrect from the dead. He did not ascend into heaven where he sits and reigns over all until all of his enemies are under his feet and he is not coming back so that you will spend eternity as a disembodied spirit floating around somewhere in the clouds up there thinking that this is bliss. Nothing so small is in store for you. What did Jesus come to do? Why did he die? Why did he resurrect? Why is he ruling over all things now? Why is he coming back? The Bible puts it this way. Jesus came to make all things new. A new heaven and a new earth. And it will all belong to him because he is the one who will have done it. And on that day, when he returns in glory to make all things new, he will look at every single one of us who have followed him, and he will say, this world that is mine is now yours too. Nothing less than that is worthy of Jesus. Nothing less than that is worthy of your dreams and your hopes and your desires than to be with Jesus in that new world forever. The glory of that day will make all the pain and suffering that you've gone through in this life absolutely disappear. It will be unbelievable. And that tells us then what Jesus is saying to his disciples here when he says, pray for this to happen. Put your heart there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Put your life there. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Devote your life to what I devoted my life to, Jesus says, changing the world into the kingdom of God. Do you want to know why the news disappoints you so badly? Do you want to know why the news makes you angry and why the only way you can handle it is to turn it off and act as if the world out there doesn't exist? It's because far too long, we in this country who follow Jesus have felt safe enough to live our private lives. It's going to be okay because the only thing that's really important is for me to have faith in Jesus and for me to be saved and for me to go to heaven. And while that's the only thing that's important, I can just live my life as I want to live it for me. But Jesus looks at us today and he says, it is not for you. This precious gift of life that I've given to you is not for you. It is for the sake of turning the world into the kingdom of God. And do you know what that means? That means that you can no longer ignore that next-door neighbor. That if you love Jesus, you'll love that neighbor too. You'll open your life up. You'll talk to them. You'll let them know what you believe. You'll let them know about Jesus. That you can no longer ignore the poor. You'll open your life up to them. You'll share your life with them. And you'll reach out to them in the name of Jesus. That you can no longer ignore American culture that you can no longer ignore the things that are going on in this world, but that we will use the tools that Jesus has given us to bring change in the world for the kingdom of God. Are you ready to do that? You ready to do that with your time? You ready to do that with your energy? I know what you're thinking. Richard, don't you see how old I am? If you're breathing the air, you have opportunities to do this, to touch someone's life for Jesus. The story was told of a woman who had had a bad stroke in the hospital bed, and her pastor came to visit, and she couldn't talk anymore. And so he said, let me pray for you. So he prayed for her, and they closed her eyes, and they prayed. And when he finished praying, she couldn't speak, so all she did was this. He looked at her, she's doing this. And what she was pointing to was her roommate and telling him, go talk to her too. Do you see where her heart was? Not on herself. Not on what was happening to her. But there. And our lives in Macon, Georgia have got to be like that. And if you will, you will see the blessings of God and you will see the world around you changed. Jesus gave us a vision and it's a wonderful vision that's worth every moment of your life. And he put it like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. 
Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we bless you that you gave your life to this vision. We thank you for that. We pray now the Holy Spirit will reach into our hearts because we simply don't have the power to do this on our own. But we believe that if you will give us the power, we can be changed into the kinds of people you want us to be. Holy Spirit, our prayer is simple. Please make us like Jesus. Amen.